Welcome to the Thinking Leader Podcast, sponsored by Red Team Thinking. Bad leaders react, good leaders plan, and great leaders think. Each week, we bring you new ideas and insights from business leaders, military leaders, and thought leaders. Ideas and insights that will help you think more deeply and lead more effectively, so that you can better navigate your complex world. Here again are your hosts, best-selling business author and top-rated leadership speaker Bryce Hoffman, and former Royal Air Force Wing Commander and Business Agility Coach Marcus Dimbleby. Hello and welcome to the show. I'm Bryce Hoffman, coming to you from Northern California. I'm joined, as always, by... Marcus Dimbleby in London, United Kingdom, and boy, do we have a guest for you today. Bryce? We do. I am so excited. Today, we have with us the one, the only, Molly McDonald coming to us from Michigan in the United States. Molly is the founder and CEO of the Pink Fund, which is one of the coolest charities, coolest breast cancer charities. Um, and, and I've known Molly for many years. She, the, the auto industry is a big fan of her and of her work and, and uh, automakers like Ford have been big supporters of what she does. She herself is a breast cancer sir thriver. Molly, tell us a little bit more about yourself and the Pink Fund. So um, in 1997, I went through a financially devastating divorce with five children. I had to take them and, and move and kind of readjust my lifestyle. I segued my career from marketing and journalism and PR into sales. And I had an opportunity to be part of a woman-owned, well, actually establish a woman-owned division of this company into the Detroit market. And in the time between I quit my job and started this new job, I had a mammogram and I had no family history of breast cancer, never a lump, a bump, never a call back on a previous mammogram. And I received a call back and I had a biopsy. And on April 1st, 2005, just as I had exited Major League Baseball's building on Park Avenue in New York City, uh, one of the companies that we were in the running for to get their graphic design contracts for the all-star game that was going to be played in Detroit that July, uh, my cell phone rang. And it was one of those clam phones. So I flipped it open and it was my OBGYN um, who delivered all five of my children now delivering news that for over 40,000 women a year in the U.S. is a death sentence. And I was stunned. And unfortunately, that derailed my job opportunity. I felt that I ethically had to share with my new employer that I had this diagnosis, that I was going to undergo treatment and that I probably wasn't the best person for them to start this division of their company. So that left me unemployed and unemployable with a COBRA premium to maintain my health insurance for life-saving treatment um, of $1,300 a month, and that's in 2005 dollars. So without my income and this COBRA premium and the fact that I had no savings, no child support, no alimony, within three months, my home is in foreclosure. And every 58 days, my auto creditor was calling me asking if I was planning to make a car payment or should they plan to repo my car. And by August, toward the end of my treatment, um, my utilities were about to be shut off. So I am sitting in the treatment rooms in the provider setting where 
this was in the radiation. So now I'm in radiation and you go every day for six weeks, same time. So you start to make friends sort of with the other women in there. And I was listening to some of them talk about the fact that their treatment protocol was going to outlast their federal medical leave benefits and that they probably wouldn't have a job to return to. And they were considering stopping treatment, returning to work. And I thought, wow, they talked about putting their homes on the market, pulling kids out of college and making really radical financial decisions that had long-term consequences for them. In my case, um, you know, those, those default payments that my credit report totally tanked. I think it went down to like 420 because I was late on everything. I default, you know, so I went home to my new husband, um, who I call Tom Terrific. And I call him Tom Terrific because I say, you have to be pretty terrific to marry a middle-aged woman with five children, night sweats, and a mildly demented mother. I mean, who does that really, right? So, <laughs> Tom Terrific does, clearly. Yeah, he does. So I went home and I said, Tom, I have this idea. I think that we should start a nonprofit. I had no really nonprofit experience except having been in what's called the Junior League here in the Detroit area, where I volunteered my services for various things. And um, in fact, I kind of thought nonprofits weren't real businesses. And I was completely wrong about that. And we'll talk about that later. So I said to Tom, look, I think we should start this nonprofit and we should pay these women's bills for non-medical, non-negotiable expenses directly to their creditors for 90 days, providing a financial bridge. And so I described, and he looked at me, he's like, "Mm mm-hmm, because we can't pay our own bills. So I don't know, what are you thinking? And well, because he sleeps with the boss, he went along with it. (laughs) (laughs) So um, I traded, I had an Eero Saarinen, which a lot of people don't know about, mid-century modern is very popular now in styling. So I had a tulip table um, from Eero Saarinen and I traded it, it had a cash value of about $1,500. So I traded it to the graphic designer for a heart and ribbon logo. We got a donated website. And then I had been an executive at the Detroit Free Press, so I I cold called the medical writer, the health reporter, Pat Anstett-Kiska, and shared with her what I was trying to do. And she, um, well, what I shared with her is that I cast up my bust before my surgery. So the night before my surgery, I had a lot of anxiety about what was going to happen to the girls, as my husband called them. He called them the (laughs) twins. Now he calls them the sisters. Um, and, and frankly, you know, I didn't need them anymore. They had done what they were biologically engineered to do. I nursed five children with them. And so I, you know, didn't need them. I didn't have a career as a topless dancer. There was nothing that I needed to keep them for anymore. <laughs> but I wanted a memory of what they looked like. So we cast up the bust. And then my husband actually cast it in 32 pounds of dental stone, put a rod in it. And then an artist painted it beautifully with like bab- ba- uh, battle ribbons across the chest and some gold leaf. And I, um, I'm going to turn on, I'm going to show you this. Right. So I t- started taking the bust out. I don't know if you can hold on. <laughs> I had this fake ADT sign. See, look at the ADT. Okay. So I just, I couldn't afford ADT in my house, but I had a fake ADT sign to keep robbers away. 
And, <laughs> and um, I went out. Improvise with, and overcome. Yeah, I went out and I hauled that bus around and did these bus stop speaking engagements. And I kind of told my riches to rags division story to launch this nonprofit. Do you have a picture that we can put in the, in the show Yeah, notes? we have a picture of the bus. In fact, right, um, yeah. my, my sons were young at the time, 11 and 14. And sometimes their friends would come over and the bus would be, you know, right there. <laughs> I'm sure. I'm so. teenagers. I, well, I don't know. I mean, how do you explain that? Yeah, those are my mom's boobs. I don't know. You know, she's she has a business. <laughs> so it's, in fact, um, Bryce will know this. So they were, we had a store at Somerset Mall, Brighton Collectibles, and they would do an October promotion for us. And so the bust was in the store up on a pedestal. And I was there one day and these little boys are like running around like, look at that. You know, and then um, the hockey team from Wayne State University asked me to come and bring the bust. And I brought it and I put a tank top over it because I thought, you know, I don't know, shouldn't be in an academic environment. (laughs) And they told me to take the tank top off because it was too sexy with the tank top. So there you go. So anyway, that's how we got started. I would go and speak at Kiwanis, Rotary, Optimist Clubs, churches, synagogues, community groups. And we officially launched October 2nd, 2006, with a front page story in what was then sort of the women's way we live section in the Detroit Free Press. And they were part of um, Knight Ritter newspaper. I think it might be McClatchy or McLaren. I can't remember. Left it. Knight Ritter. Knight Ritter. But that was, then they were sold. So they must have still been Knight Ritter. Um, But 27 of the newspapers picked up the whole story. And then we put the bust for sale on eBay just for the hell of it. Cause you know, I, if somebody would pay me $10,000, that would have given me some capacity building money, but nobody bought it of course. And uh, it now lives in our basement. <laughs> so, so anyway, we started and we were an all volunteer um, organization for the first six years. And talk a little bit, Molly, about what you, how, how you have grown from just building that awareness to getting corporate sponsors and, and turning this into a really big deal that's that's making such a positive difference in the lives of so many folks. Yeah. Can I, can I just interject before you start, Molly? I've just been doing some research previously. You know, you've donated over $5 million. Actually, in six, that time six million. Six. six million. We did a million wow. this last year. Mm-hmm. Wow. So that sort of sets the tone of the capability that your organization is bringing. Incredible. You know, during the pandemic, when many nonprofits had to really adjust their programs and let people go, and some of them sundowned, we thrived. And so last year, uh, fiscal ending t- June 2021, we delivered $770,000 in financial dis- support. And this year, we've just tipped over a million. Wow. So while many nonprofits lost revenue, we gained revenue. And what do you attribute that to? We were not, we're not an event-driven organization. We are not dependent upon walks, races, or galas. So how do you raise money? So that was one of the first things when I started. I did not want to get into the walk race space. I felt already in 2006 that it was oversaturated. And certainly by 2020, it was very much oversaturated. So my vision was um, corporate cause marketing partnerships, individual donors, and then events that other individuals would mount for us, raise the money, no cost to us, so no overhead in terms of the pink fund having to hire an event planner. Um, 
And so it's kind of almost a third, a third, and a third right now, that about a third come from third-party events, or they call it peer-to-peer fundraising, and a third from our cause marketing partnerships, for which we have contractual agreements where there are defined minimum donations and then options for additional donations. And then the other third are um, individual donors who make either monthly or annual gifts. That's great. I, you know, listening to you talk about this, it sounds like you're talking about a business. Yes. And so talk about. In 1985, I was the speechwriter for Ernie Jones, the head of Darcy McManus, Macias, Benton and Bowles. And Ernie Jones and his agency was the agency after Mad Men was patterned. Oh, wow. Right. He had the Cadillac account. And he was an icon. So I'm pregnant with my second child, and I was hired to write all his speeches. And we would eat in the executive dining room, and then we would go up to his palatial three-sided glass office with huge oriental rug, Le Corbusier, beautiful leather couches. And Ernie would come out, not like a glass like this, but a, a highball, like a tumbler, a clear liquid. And I would have water. And I later realized that he was drinking straight vodka. <laughs> Because <laughs> things were changing during the interview in terms of his speech. So anyway, I, now I got off totally off tangent. So let's talk about business, okay. right? Let's talk about the business of nonprofits. So nonprofits, I think, have not really understood that the only difference between a for-profit business and a nonprofit business is that nonprofit businesses don't pay taxes. That's it. Everything else needs to be run like a for-profit business. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The other difference, and I think this is going to change as a result of the great resignation, you know, a fallout from, a good fallout, I think, in part from COVID, is that in order to attract and retain talent and get good people, you can't rely just on their passion for the mission and underpay them. It's wrong. And we need to start educating the public that, if they want a well-run nonprofit, we need to compensate our employees in a reasonable way. So at the Pink Fund, we do annual compensation studies. And wow. we make sure that we are paying, when somebody comes in for a new position, depending on their experience and level of education, we are make sure that we pay them a minimum of 50% of the range. Our sweet spot is to hit between 75 and 80%. Um, we also, um, have some benefits. So we have a simple IRA plan. We adjust for inflation every single year. So if our revenue doesn't go down, then everybody gets a cost of living raise. So this year it was, I think before March, it was like 5.9%. I don't want my employees to slide backwards. And I, I was just talking to my daughter about this in LA And um, what's so important to me is that when people are properly compensated and don't have to worry about money, they perform better. I'm sure somebody did a study about that. Right. Right. Yeah. So so why would we. Shocking that that's the case. (laughs) So why would we expect somebody to work in a mission based organization and be financially stressed out, particularly our mission based organization where people that we get we help are stressed out financially. So the other thing in nonprofits is this thing called the overhead myth. So people always will say, so what percentage of my dollar is going to the program and what percentage is going to overhead? 
right? So your auditors come in what, and they think, they think all salaries are overhead, the general public. They do not understand the cost to raise the dollar or put right. it back into the mission. So the reality is, and I'll just give an example of my salary. So my salary is divided up three ways. Part of it is program. Part of it is um, fundraising. And part of it is oversight. And it depends. I mean, throughout the year, we don't have a real formula for it. But if I'm traveling and speaking, I'm doing two things. I'm educating and I'm fundraising. Right? I'm not in the office running the operation. So I take those days that I've traveled and I've been out of the office and kind of calculate fundraising, edu- ed, you know, program for education. And then back at the days that I'm in the office, I spend about 10% of my time in oversight of the whole operation. The three charity um, watchdogs many years ago came up with this overhead myth. And so people can Google it. It was Charity Navigator, GuideStar, and I believe the Better Business Bureau's um, oversight. And I think, but I think when you start explaining this to people, they glaze over because they don't understand. And I had a phone call one time from a nurse from a hospital in Ohio. And she said to me, and this is early on in our operation, she called, because I don't really take random phone calls anymore, but um, she said to me, I want to donate to your organization, but I only donate to all volunteer run organizations. So I quickly Googled her hospital and it has a nonprofit status, right? And I said, wow, that is so interesting. And you work for a nonprofit. So are you, you're like a nurse and you don't, you don't get paid. You're working for free. That is amazing. You are so nice. Like how, you know, and she's like, what? I said, well, your hospital is a nonprofit. So you've just told me that you only donate to nonprofit organizations. So I'm assuming that you aren't paid for your services. Yeah. She hung up the phone. She interesting. Hung up. Don't like to be called out. Well, you know, it, 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 it's interesting because I mean, you, you, you said something a minute ago, Molly, that's so important. It's so important for nonprofits, but it's also so important for any business, for any organization, which is if you want people to, to, to bring their best, yeah, there there are people who who will will try to move heaven and earth, you know, because they're passionate about what they do and stuff for no compensation. But but consistently, day after day, year after year, for the long haul, that's not sustainable for for most people. And so, if you want people to bring their best, if you want people to give their all to the mission, whether the mission is doing good works like your organization is doing, or simply trying to increase shareholder value for, a, for a, a company, you have to compensate them and, and you have to compensate them in a way that is not, is not making them constantly look over their shoulder at, at uh, their, their expenses catching up. And I love that you do this cost of living increase separate from merit increases. I love that you have these mechanisms in place to, to give your employees the confidence that, that they're not going to fall behind, which is something I would imagine in the world today with inflation at levels that we haven't seen since the early 1980s with gasoline prices rising, with food prices rising and, and everything else, that uh, there are a lot of people right now who are distracted from their jobs because they're worried about mm-hmm. their income. We've made some recent adjustments with the gasoline prices. We were already in a hybrid work environment between home and office. You know, in COVID, we were home for 
eight, almost 18 months in it. What was remarkable is we delivered our program seamlessly without interruption during that time, but we've made adjustments to, to understand that the cost of gas is, you know, basically almost double. Uh, one of my employees told me that get coming here was costing them $12,000 a year with the new, with the increase. So wow. I said, okay, we have to fix yeah, that. Yeah. We, I mean, I'm not going to pay you more money. I'm going to let you work from home more. But I have to tell you a funny story that happened to me yesterday and so embarrassing. So one of the things in nonprofit is that a founder needs to plan for succession, right? So I'm talking to other founders who are at a stage where they've already started that process or they completed it and they found some of the landmines. So this would go to the importance of red team thinking right here. Mm-hmm. How do you plan do the pre, you know, it's not the postmortem, it's, it, and it's not even pre-mortem, but it could be because if you don't properly plan, mm. your organization is going to go out, going to be done, right? So this is where red team thinking could really help a founder-led organization think about what succession looks like and what are some of the landmines. So I'm talking to this woman, I'm not going to name her, but she runs an awesome organization that provides clinical trial transportation support for cancer patients who are unable to participate in clinical trials because it's a financial barrier to get there. And I looked at all her 990s. And so for those of you who don't know about um, nonprofit, 990 is the tax return that we file every year. Even though we don't pay taxes, we are uh, required to file a return to prove to the IRS that we are doing what we say we do and we can maintain our nonprofit um, tax-free status. So I'm looking at her 990s for the last few years. She launched her organization the same year I did. Um, she's, I think, close to my age. And I noticed that a couple of years ago, she took on a new role and they hired a CEO. But as I looking at the 990s, I can't see any salary paid for her. So when we spoke, she told me she wasn't, they were all volunteer, that she was a volunteer. And one of the things I said to her was, well, now that you moved into a new CEO, you never had a salary for yourself on the book. So then you have to raise money for that, or that's a new expense, right? So, and I'm telling her my riches to rags story. This is what I'm telling her. Well, I, this is because I use this in my speeches. Well, I once lived a life of luxury, a life that most Americans gamble and buy lottery tickets trying to achieve. And then I told her my story of everything, how my former husband lost all our money and we had to move. I had to take my kids and leave. So at the end of our conversation, oh, and I also told her I'm a former reporter. That was a big mistake because I hadn't done my homework, (laughs) you know, and then I was going to ask her a lot of questions and I had not done my homework on her. I'd done my homework on the organization, but I didn't try to find out more about her. So I hang up the phone. I decide to Google her, find out who her husband is. She and her husband made the largest gift of $200 million to the University of Southern California. They made another gift of $100 million and another gift of $30 million. And I'm like, oh, my God. I mean, I'm an idiot. So I send her an email. Title says, reporter does not not do her homework. And I'm like, I am horrified, (laughs) embarrassed. I can't believe it. And she was so gracious to me. She said, oh, I didn't think a thing of it. In retrospect, I think if I had understood her net worth, like the kind of money she and her husband had, the conversation would have gone very differently. I think I would have been intimidated. I'm not sure. Or 
if I had known, would I have maybe thought she was a potential donor to the Pink Fund? Would things have been different? But the two lessons are, you know, kind of do your homework ahead of time. And usually we do before I talk to anybody, but my schedule has been kind of tight. But that was an interesting story. So her organization, she's transitioning. Um, she's, she's now Chief Strategy and Visionary Officer. So I love this idea of using red team thinking to red team succession planning and other parts of nonprofit operation. Let's take a short break. And when we come back, let's dive into that deeper. Welcome back. Wow, Molly, that has been such an interesting journey that you've had with the Pink Fund. You mentioned before the break this idea of using red team thinking for nonprofits, red teaming nonprofits. And I know that you have have used red team thinking with great effect at the Pink Fund. Can you talk to us a little bit about how you've been able to use these tools and techniques and how they've helped you as a leader of this organization? So I think um, the, the gift of the Pink Fund was when we sat with your team and did not a post-mortem analysis, but pre-mortem. And so one of the, and just how you structured it to determine how we were going to look at it. And when we did that pre-mortem, they said, well, what would happen, you know, that would cause the Pink Fund to go away? My thought was we all drive to a conference in a car and are killed in a car accident. <laughs> So now There's nobody gets to go together. That came out in that session, if right. I nobody, nobody is going to fly in the same plane. The whole team's not going on the same plane, the same train, the same car. It's not happening. But what really helped us was this idea of think, write, speak. So um, I don't think before I speak a lot of the time. I My husband says I'm impulsive. And I say, oh, spontaneous. <laughs> You know, yeah. not really, but he's right. So this whole idea of slowing the brain down, mm -hmm. thinking, writing what you want to say, and then speaking. And then the second idea to avoid interruptions and people over talking is nobody speaks twice until everybody speaks once. And then nobody speaks three times until everybody speaks twice. I also love the, I, the thoughts around if you have somebody an expressive personality like myself or a dominant in a room that they can shut down the other people who may have something really great to say, but they're intimidated or that person is steering the conversation. So we talked about that. And that's why that think, write, speak, nobody speaks once until everybody speaks twice. is just a really great tenant of rep team thinking. That's something really interesting. I, I, before you, before you go on, I just want to say that's something really interesting that you hit on there, Molly, which is that, the, the self-awareness that you get as a leader, recognizing how, how you can inadvertently shut down the conversation on your team. Because, you know, I know you, you're a wonderful person. You're not an egomaniac. You're, you're an altruistic person. And 
oftentimes when we think of, of leaders who, who, who shut their teams down, we think of these tyrannical, you know, assholes, you know, um, and, and, and yet we, the thing that I think a lot of this, these tools kind of help us see about ourselves is that even when we're well-meaning, even when we want to be a good leader, we do things unconsciously and inadvertently that may narrow the discussion on our teams and may make our team members feel like they can't challenge us or they can't speak up. So I love how, how just using that simple tool, which is really the simplest tool we, we, we teach, think, right, share, helped you to, to see how you could open more space for your team. So we were doing that with our board um, in our Monday morning meetings. We're trying to do that. Uh, I think that the other, the other, well, think right share I love, but the other thing that really stuck with me were these biases that we have. Cognitive biases. Like the bias, the bias of knowledge. And I, I took copious notes when we were together and I've lost them. So, but um, <laughs> the bias, sort of the, and then, there were these other things like career suicide, like people afraid to speak up because they're afraid they're going to lose their job. And how do you, we have a rule at the pink find. If nobody's dead and nobody's going to jail, most mistakes can be fixed. I love that. And as long as I love that. And so we tell people that on the onboarding right away, you know, we all make mistakes. We need to be able to own our mistakes. And if nobody's dead and nobody's going to jail, we're good. We can fix it. Now, if it happens repeatedly, we have a problem. Right. But, um, you know, so I've had, I had an employee come to me one time and she said, remember you told me that if nobody's dead and nobody's going to jail and I'm like, uh, <laughs> what are you going to tell me? And uh, so she was prepping me to not react. The other thing I think that um, Think Right Speak teaches you is to flex your responses. Um you have to slow yourself down. You think more clearly. You're listening more intently. You're taking in the information. Yeah. And I thought that was that was probably the number one thing. And I, I love the whole pre-mortem versus post-mortem analysis yes. and how you use that um, to identify what could go wrong and what could go right. And whether you should move in that direction. Yeah, it's very powerful. If you know what, if you if you have a better idea of what can go wrong with a plan, with a strategy, or a direction you're heading, you can you can take steps proactively so that it doesn't go wrong. It's it's kind of like the old adage: forewarned is forearmed. And, that, and that's what allows you to take your time, isn't it? You can take your time, but in a hurry, as you said, it allows you to slow down but speed up because you're being adaptive. You're aware of what's coming. And as a leader, that's really important because if you're just fixed and impulsive, then you keep making these bad reactive decisions rather than, as you said, slow down, understand all of these factors that are impacting you or are likely to. And then that allows you to be far better positioned as you step forward. And your team is aware of, well, which is key is taking your team. And we saw that with your group, you know, very much it was a group team effort. And, you know, you wouldn't have known you were the CEO in the room after 10 minutes. You know, you really got to play the part of as a team member. And it's fascinating to see that. So I think in general, I run kind of a flat organization and I ask people what they think. I did that before Red Team Thinking. But I also think this whole pre-mortem analysis allows you to look at maybe a growth opportunity and what are the risks and potential rewards. And once you've identified the risks, then 
you better have a plan in place to address them if it happens, right? So I can't talk about something that we were approached to do, but um, it's, uh, I'm in this Goldman Sachs program. And so when we're trying to look at a growth opportunity, it's, is it effective? Is it efficient? Is it compelling? Is it profitable? profitable and does it fit with you? So this opportunity that we have for the pink fund is, a, and does it solve a pain point? So this opportunity fits all those except the last one. Does it fit with me? And what that means to me is, is it ethical? It's legal, but is it ethical? And, yeah. and, and how will I feel about it? Like that, I've always been afraid. I've talked a lot about, I've lost a lot in my life and I've talked a lot about most of the things we lose are taken from us, but we give away our integrity. Wow. And so I think red team thinking, if we use it on a consistent basis, will help us to check our integrity when we're confronted with potential opportunities to maybe raise a lot of money or make a lot of money. And what's the outcome of that? And I, I just, I, I hope I never give away my integrity for money or opportunity. Yeah. So one thing that you hold, isn't it, that no one can take away from you, that's your decision. And I think that's such a powerful statement. Yeah. It is so powerful, Molly. And I have to tell you, I mean, that gave me chills when you said it. I mean, if if people are using these tools and techniques to to maintain their integrity, then I, I feel like my work here is finished. Humanity I mean, 101. Yeah, that's, I mean, there's no greater goal than that. I mean, it, like you say, at the end of the day, you, you know, you do what you do, you, but you still have to look at yourself in the mirror. You know, Bryce, you've been in the automotive industry and gotten really close to a former CEO of Ford. And um, I compare a lot of things that happen in the design, engineering, production and sale of a vehicle. And at some point, often a problem is identified. Mm -hmm. But because of career suicide or other concerns, and it's not brought to the forefront. Right. And so then we have recalls. Yep. And we have death. And we have settlements. And billions and billions of dollars are lost. And then there's a crisis that the automotive company has to address. And so... When I think back to red team thinking, if every industry used this and if every employee was free and felt like they wouldn't commit career suicide or that they were going to be heard, all of this would change. Yeah. I Prevention agree. of those things will be huge. Mm-hmm. And, and it's not just automotive. You know, we're seeing it. No, in it's pharma, everywhere, but, every but we see it. Right. We see, we see it all the time. In fact, talking about pharma quickly, I did a, I, I did a speech. I'm really interested in clinical trials and, In clinical trials, um, this is where patients have run out of options for their disease state. And so they participate in a clinical trial, knowing that this may improve their survivorship and that of people in the future. So in the clinical trial space, everything is um, controlled. So they have these clinical trials and then the drug gets through phase three and they're going to go to commercialization. But guess what they haven't asked the patient? What? How would you like the drug delivered? Hmm. So in some cases, um, the timing of when you can take a drug before or after exercise, before or after eating, before or after sleeping has been controlled in that setting. But when the patient gets home, it's not. And so 
a particular right. drug was all recalled, all brought back. Nobody was taking it. They abandoned it. It's called prescription abandonment. That can even, even happen either because of cost or it's just too hard for the patients to take. That happened with a lot of the early AIDS drugs in Africa in particular, because you know you had NGOs who were like, great, there's now treatments for, for HIV and AIDS. Let's, let's fund the widespread distribution of these drugs in rural Africa. But the drugs required precise timings multiple See? times a day. And you're giving to people who don't have a clock in their house. Right. And, you know, who are living in rural villages where there's no people are telling the time by the sun still. Exactly. And it didn't work. And, you know, and so finally they realized that it's not just simply a matter of giving people the drugs. You have to you have to give them the support to make sure they can take them. And so in some of these villages, I know some of these NGOs had people like runners go out and like in the in the village square and say, wow. it's time to take your drug now. And fortunately, they were able to evolve the, these drugs. so They didn't have to be so onerous, but that's unintended consequences. Yeah. They have somewhere, um, you'll get a, you'll get your phone, we'll give an alert or what, but, but I think the mistake is so interesting again. So industry, you know, we, we get through it, but we haven't talked to the patient about the commercialization of the drug. So there was another one with an eyedrop company where the eyedropper was plastic and it was so hard to press took put too many drops out. So they had to recall the whole thing. If they had had the patient there and said, how would you like the drug delivered? Or they had like six different droppers and people tested them. Yeah, that wouldn't have happened. And I think that red team thinking could be used, you know, everywhere and really help to eliminate these very costly time consuming problems for industry and those they and their customers. Yeah. And I, and, and, and also help with the, avoid these, these ethical, problems. Cause you know, I, I, that's such an important point you raised Molly, because it's not just, you know, it, 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 it recalls and people dying from safety features is a huge, is a huge tragedy. But even, even when it's not a life and death thing, you know, when you were telling that story, I was thinking back to a story I wrote when I was a journalist too, in Detroit, like you used to be and like I used to be. Um, I wrote a story about, about the, uh, the Ford 500, when it was launched, and this would be the mid two thousands, and it, for for those who never saw one or don't know what it was, it was it was it was widely panned as one of the most boring cars ever produced. And so I wrote a scathing piece about how this was just the death of design at four. This is before Alan Mulally came, the death of design, and it was a parts bin car that had been cobbled together from the leftovers of, of other vehicles and stuff. I was pretty harsh. I got a call the next day from the head designer and he was crying. He was actually cho choked up in tears. And he said, I would like to meet you for coffee and show you what this car looked like when I designed it. Oh, that changed. And, and what it was is he said, you know, and he showed me it was a beautiful car that he and his team had designed. But once it was done, the bean counters, the, you know, everyone came in and said, well, you know, yeah, that roof line looks good, but it's going to be more expensive to get that type of stamping. So we're going to cut this corner. We're going to cut that corner and just death by a hundred corner cuts destroyed that vehicle. And that's all that too is about integrity. It's about uh, uh, the integrity of what you're delivering to your, to your customers. And so you're right. You have to do that gut check about, yes, we could save 10 cents by doing this, but what are we losing? in the process. 
I would have been curious if they would have had a focus group with a diverse cohort of potential car buyers who would have said, yeah, I'll pay more for that if you keep the roof line that way, but I'm not buying the car if you change it. That's that was their mistake. I often talk about we're all siloed in our industries, you know, Mm -hmm. and, and it's really important to have the outliers in who see things very differently, whether those be customers or just random people that ask questions. I um, participated in, um, a pitch session uh, for angel investors and private equity last week, I was invited. And I don't, I don't know how much I can say about this, but there was a medical device that was being pitched. And um, the medical device is awesome, but it can only be used 400 times before they need to change out this cartridge. So this guy did a great job on the pitch, but um, I raised my hand and I said, well, how does the clinician know when, when the device is no longer able to be used, like, is it going to beep at you? Or is it like your car? It's going to say you're Mm -hmm. almost out of gas, so to speak. Well, he just didn't think to ask that question. I did. So there are reasons it has a counter on it and you can't push this thing down when it's up and all of those things. But see, I'm not an investor and I don't know anything about medical devices. I know very little. So I saw it differently. And I was told that was a really good question. And that helped him to tweak his pitch for further um, opportunities to raise money to bring this device to market. Well, that gets into the diversity of thought. That is another thing we try to cultivate with Red Team Thinking. When you create teams, when you bring people together with diverse backgrounds from different parts of your organization, from outside your organization, they're going to see things differently than than those folks are who have their, their nose to the grindstone. And that's valuable. Yeah. So last week at the Goldman Sachs class, which was all day, we all had to write our mission and vision statements. And then we they were put all over these walls and there were 14, 15 people in the class and they all had to read them and give feedback because they're all from different lines of work. And that was really helpful to me. Like, you know, they asked a lot of questions and they made some really great suggestions, which we've taken back and we're at changing things up. You mentioned something during the break that, that I'd like to talk about because I think it's really interesting. The biology of belief. What is the biology of belief? Well, there's a book about it, which I haven't read. But to (laughs) me, to me, it's like that little golden children's book, The Little Engine That Could. And it's, I think it's a 1950s, 60s book. And I, I think I had it. And this little train has to go up this very steep hill. And, uh, it doesn't have a very strong engine. But the train says to himself or herself or they self, um, I think I can, I think I can, I think I can, I think I can, I think I can. I can't explain it, but I've seen it happen. So here I was in line in the basement of a church pantry for a, at a food bank to feed my children. And I come home and I tell my husband, we're going to start an organization that pays other people's bills. People would laugh at me in the beginning I mean, they looked at me like I was delusional. And I remember coming home after meeting with someone who said, told me I was delusional. And I came home and I'm like, I'm crying. Like this person thinks I can't do this, but I think I can. So I don't get it, but it has happened. And the other thing I think is really important are vision boards. And it's very much used in athletes, isn't it? You see that with you know, gold medalists who beforehand their coaches are, you know, solely getting to focus. And that's now moved into team sports where you focus on winning and feeling what that sense of winning feels like generates that internal engine to make sure you can 
know, move forward and the belief is there. So Ted Lasso, right? The awesome series about football. I love that. Football, soccer, but indeed. football. What That sign on the yellow piece of paper, believe. Believe. Yeah. Right? Yeah. One word. Yeah. How does that work? It's like, it's, it's, I, I still don't get it. It goes back to my favorite Henry Ford quote, which is, if you think you can or you think you can't, you're right. Exactly. And that's, I have used that in some of my talks. Thank you for reminding me of that because I haven't used that in a while. But that's true. It's so true, though. I mean, you know, it, it, it's, it's, it, it, and it's not about being delusional. It's not about overconfidence, which is something that, like, we try to guard against um, in red team thinking. It's about, it's about knowing that you have this reservoir that you can draw on, but you can only draw on it if you believe that you have a chance, you know? And it's not just you, isn't it? It, It's, you can do that yourself, but as you've seen Molly and we've seen with our other clients, you've got a a sea of people working with you and for you. And if you're not unlocking their potential and letting them believe as well, and when you see them believing, and we all know in the the US, I think 79% of people aren't engaged at work. That's a lot of disengagement. And if you, every 1% of increased engagement that's going to hit your ROI. It's going to increase your culture. It's going to make the mood of the workplace better. And every increase in that mood level, the output and performance and happiness and just general well-being goes up. We know this. Right. And, and it's a fantastic thing to be part of and you know, to enable it. So who wrote that song that begins, should I stay or should I go? The Clash, mine and Mr. Hoffman. No? I don't know if they, I don't know if they wrote it. They, they populated it. Well, okay. it. I'm going to look that up. So, should I stay or should I go? We we last spring did the state. Well, it already is. Maybe it was last winter. We did this stay interview. Should I stay or should I go? Why are you staying? Why would you go? People need to understand that. And then they need to adjust if they value that employee. So they will stay. Absolutely. And I did look it up. The Clash did write it too. It's a great song. Love that song. So Molly, we were talking about at the break, you know, the gift of COVID. And um, we all know that in any crisis, the the smart people who are thinking, looking, observing, see not just the threats, but the opportunities. And, you know, in your position as CEO, what were the opportunities that you saw that came from the sort of dark side of COVID, if you will? Well, we saw a lot of, um, in a nonprofit business, so many of the, the revenue is predicated on events. So, we had already, I had already decided, as I mentioned earlier, that we weren't going to be an event-driven organization. Yeah. Um, Proved to be a wise move. Pivoting to hybrid work environment. We did that seamlessly. The gift of COVID for the Pink Fund was that we are now able to build a national board of directors because we're going to hold our meetings on Zoom. We'll have a one-year annual meeting where we'll bring people to one location, probably here because we it depends how that plays out. But by building a national board that's diverse, it opens us up to many more opportunities, right? People. Sure. In, so we just recently brought on um, a breast oncologist from the University of Texas named Marcella Mazo Canola, who is an immigrant from Colombia. And, and this is so amazing. And she's helping us move everything to bilingual. And that's a community of people in the U.S. that are underserved, the Hispanic community. So she told me we were at the largest oncology conference, global oncology conference, a couple of weeks ago in Chicago. And she shared with me that joining our board made her feel like 
even though she's doing great work in oncology and saving lives and she loves her job, but that she felt she wasn't doing enough, she said, for her people and meaning her Hispanic people. So literally, wow. literally this week, we got a thank you note from a single mother who immigrated to the U.S. from Colombia, whose mortgage we paid for three months. From Colombia, just like her. From Colombia. I'm like, how does that happen? Like, I don't know. Like, this is magic to me. So, and she just, and so I sent her the note and I said, Marcella, here you go. This is, this is actually your people, not just the Hispanic population you're serving, but your people. Yeah. It's a mind blow. It's a diversity of thought in action right there. So she's kind of in the South and somebody on the East coast, somebody on the West coast. Um, And people who either come from oncology research, um, Nonprofits, IT, legal, HR. It's, it's just, it really has opened up a lot of possibilities. The other thing I would say, well, you all know that when we did our um, session together, that I couldn't get off, right? The first time we were on Zoom, when you were telling me about, before we did it with the team, it was the only Zoom call where I wasn't multitasking or shutting off my camera so I could go, I don't know, get a cup of coffee or make the bed or something, you know, I, um, because I was so engaged. And I, I just have to say that I think everybody- This was our online course yeah, that you did. Yeah, it was amazing. Yeah. And I saw it on LinkedIn. Remember, I saw it on LinkedIn and I said, I want to do this. And I think um, it, was, it was a huge benefit. And then our team just really got a lot out of it. And so they asked me today, well, when you talk to Bryce today, are you, are you going to ask him if we can do more? I'm like, well, you know, yes, but we have to pay for it. We'll have to figure that out because I, uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll hook you this up. This is my we'll other thing, though, that I think that's really, really important is I don't like to take advantage of people. I don't think we should ask people to do unpaid, as you say, unconsulting. It's consulting, but, you know, it's. That's the other thing I really liked about it too. What you talked about, the you know, the consultant is really there to work his or her way out of a job. Should be. Unfortunately, that's that's too often not the case. But yeah, absolutely should be. But if you follow the pra- the process, and if you practice the process, you will become proficient at the process. One hundred percent, and that's the whole intent of how we operate with these tools and the way we teach them, because that's what we want people to do good with them and we just did a client this week and we did one session and they came back for the next session they said hey i taught my whole team this yesterday i said there you go that that's the whole point you get this cascade effect and this is how you create this movement of people as we all want is everybody holding themselves to account speaking up effectively and holding that integrity level which is high and potentially avoiding some very serious downside that's what it's all about Hey, this has been a great conversation, Molly. Um, we will definitely get you some more red team thinking. You, you, it's, it's, you don't have to pay for it because we believe in, in, in giving back as well. Um, and your organization is such a great organization. I encourage anyone uh, in the U.S. or anywhere else to check out the Pink Fund and, uh, and, and look at the good work you're doing and make a donation. So, We'll have you back on because I know there's a lot more we want to talk about, but it's been such a pleasure to talk today, Molly. Thank you. Well, thank you for the opportunity to share my story and to really execute the wonderful red team thinking that you're teaching. Thank you for listening to the Thinking Leader podcast sponsored by Red Team Thinking. 
Be sure to subscribe to this podcast so that you don't miss the next idea-filled episode. Also, check out Bryce and Marcus's YouTube channel, Red Team TV. There you'll find video of today's podcast as well as previous episodes. And don't forget to visit redteamthinking.com to learn more about Red Team Thinking work and Marcus and Bryce's upcoming online courses. While you're there, take our free quiz to find out how you rate as a Red Team Thinker and if your organization has a Red Team culture. Because who thinks wins? Wins.